Doing the work we do, we can often imagine foresightful individuals, foresightful organisations even, but what about a foresightful country? Can we imagine it? I suppose if we tried, it would be something like people at the top level of the country use foresight, demonstrate foresight, embody foresight, and then it filters all the way down through the whole of the country to the people, to the children, to everyone who uses foresight. Turns out we don't necessarily have to imagine a place like that, it might well exist. Hi, I'm Peter Hayward, and I'm your host for FuturePod today. We see it as a team sport. We look at futures as a systems-wide innovation that we need to adopt. And I'm so glad that our founding father and the government leaders are already very future forward. It's very comforting. It's very encouraging to be Singaporean in a time such as this. We've seen them successfully lead us out of the pandemic. We see them lead us out of the fishing village poverty that we had in 65 up to what we are today. And we have full confidence in the next generation of leaders, my children and those in primary school, to guide us to even brighter future. That's Associate Professor John Lim, who is a design futurist and an innovation consultant. He is on the faculty at the Singapore Institute of Technology. He's a board advisor to Singapore's Polytechnic Media Art and Design School, and he's the chief design officer at the Singapore Productivity Centre. Welcome to FuturePod, John. Hi. Nice to see you, or hear you at least, Peter. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, mate. First question, John, the story question. What is John Lim's story? How did you get involved with the Futures and Foresight community? To start with, I guess I'm always interested in designing the future, not just hoping for it to happen the way I want it to, but being an active agent in doing so, whether it be my own future or that of my community or my, I would even say, my little tiny city-state and nation of Singapore. I think from a very young age, there's always been this desire to plan out or design scenarios, including architecture or urban environments, all the way to even the products we use, the lifestyles we have and all that. So it's always been on my mind. I I can't really point to a specific time or date. Mm. But yeah, it's been there. And because there's no such thing as a futures degree in Singapore. So I took a degree in architecture. I guess that was what I thought was one of the last Renaissance courses that allows you to (laughs) study history as well as design and engineering and science. And so I did that. And I found myself always designing buildings that nobody could really build. That was a start. (laughs) And lo and behold, several years later, I ended up working for someone who had the same complaint, Frank Gehry in Los Angeles. And they said his buildings can't be built, but he builds them anyway. Yeah, so that's really brief introduction. So was it always in the kind of background that's where you wanted to end up or was it something that you drifted into? I think I've always been interested in something to do with like scenario planning as well as design but I chanced upon futures a little bit more when I was living in LA in about 2002 about 20 years ago and I bumped into a concept artist in from Hollywood named Christian Lawrence Schauer and he had an exhibition at this little gallery called gallery nucleus and i was chatting with him and i was like wow it's amazing what you're drawing i can see the visions that you're 
positing and what you're thinking through. And I go, oh, how do you do it? And then he started explaining his methodology, how he would look at um, uh, near future technologies and different societal um, anxieties and combine them together and come up with um, um, paintings like uh, procession of effigies and things like that. So it was quite interesting. And then I asked him, so Christian, aren't you afraid that if I learn everything that you've taught me and I do it, uh, I steal everything that you have, that you'll be out of a job? And he says in his very gentle and sweet reply, he said, please go ahead. I was like, wow, he's really generous about his knowledge. And he says, if you're that good and I should be out of a job, I'll be happy to be out of a job. Yeah. Then he introduced me to several of his concept design friends from Hollywood. So Mark Gurner, James Klein, all these folks who work with James Cameron and Steven Spielberg on some of the sets and worlds that they've designed. And of course, I chanced upon the work of Alex McDowell and other production designers. And I began to take it more from a design angle instead of, say, a pure narrative angle. And so it was very interesting to learn like the project that Alex McDowell was on in Minority Report was actually designed through uh, discussions and think tank before the movie script was written. Yeah, yes. So that, that was very interesting. And I learned about that actually through the late William Mitchell at MIT, who was the head of architectural program then. And I was beginning to think, hey, this whole thing about what Julian Bleeker and Alex McDowell would probably be the... I guess the leaders in design fictions uh, was very intriguing to me, but I was more interested in not just looking at movie production or just provocative artifacts from the future, but I was interested in that translation from that, what David Kirby would call diegetic prototypes to reality. And that translational bit is what I'm very interested in. Yeah. Even though the poetic side is really fun as well, but I guess I'm interested in yeah, that area. With your move into the whole fiction and image of the future idea, was that something that came out of that, or was it again was science fiction and its portrayal in media and so forth? Was that present for you at a young age, or something you moved into later in life? I think it's been there since a really young age, with all the doodles and sketches of things that can be and would be. Those were my very early untrained eyes trying yeah. to make a critical commentary on, say, even my little country of Singapore, right? As some of our listeners would know, Singapore is really a tiny country where like the 20th smallest country in the world, but with one of the highest GDPs, uh, it's embarrassing to say how rich a country we are. But our founding father in 1965, when we gained independence from Malaysia, was a visionary and he won't call himself a futurist, but I would Mm. say that he has set the course for many of us and how we think about our city, our lives, and how we plan for it. We're seldom talking about just today. We're always looking at 20, 30 years out or even further. Way back then in 65, the challenges were always about housing and education. And um, there were certain ideas that were so revolutionary at that time that many people say would fail. For instance, bilingualism, right? So they would say we have to have English as a first language because it's the language of trade. But then we'll also need to know our mother tongue to whether it be Mandarin or Tamil or Malay, we would need to know what our roots are culturally. That was really bold. And the the country has pushed forward with that. Clearly, several of us are not as talented in two languages, but but many are. And it's been a real delight growing up in Singapore, knowing that there's always change. There's always something new that they're building that's pushing the boundaries. Everything from even the Marina Bay Sands Hotel that, as designed by Moshi Safdi, it 
it's iconic in Singapore with that huge infinity pool on the top that connects three towers. That wouldn't have been possible somewhere else. I think no. it's Singapore with its foresight, with its planning, with its desire to be shaping the future and designing it, um, not just the urban scape, but really uh, moving way beyond the norm constantly. And so that's where I grew up and I'm back here now, but we're always thinking of the future. We're always planning for the future, whether it be an urban way or even, if I may add, we are launching three digital banks, which is very rare in most markets that will address different needs. Imagine banks without branches and physical yep. offices, interfaces with customers, right? And so the country is constantly pushing forward, designing its own future, almost designing its own fate in that sense. So that's what I'm so excited about here. Yeah. What was your parents' attitude to the future? Clearly, you're a person who's very interested in it. And obviously, you're saying Lee Kuan Yew. Mm -hmm. Can you explain how your parents framed the journey of Singapore? And of course, your journey. Yeah. So I think from my parents' generation, it's always about giving up your individual goals for the greater goal of your family or your country. They would say, okay, we'll have to stick to this job, even if it doesn't work, but we have to build this nation together. So we have a national anthem, but we also have National Day songs. And there's a phrase that goes, we build a nation strong and free, um, reaching out together in peace and harmony. And you would think, wow, that, that has been droned into my head. And so my parents' generation would do that sacrificially, stick to one job and push forward as much as they can with the little that they do. They do realize at a very early stage that change will be a constant. Where we grew up, it doesn't even look like that anymore. There were little villages. They're all gone. We've got one tiny little village called Kampong, which means village in Malay. There's one left in the main island of Singapore and several in some offshore islands, but really tiny. We're moving ahead so fast that my parents' Singapore is very different from my Singapore, but yep. they knew that they had to give up uh, a lot in order to build what we have today in our future. That they couldn't really envision entirely, but they knew that it was a place of freedom, a place where a socialist democracy would lead us out of our fishing village uh, poverty <laughs> into a first world state. So that was from my parents' generation. And I'm so proud of them and what they've done, uh, including the leaders in my country. I know this sounds really strange when we say, oh, I'm so proud of my government, no. but I really am because they are very forward looking, they're planning and not just typical like projections as in today, as it should be tomorrow, but calculating all the risks that it would entail and moving forward as best as they could. Because if we didn't, we would be left behind. And that was the mantra that stuck with us. You don't change, you don't improve, you don't plan for the future, you'll be left behind. And so that's what my parents grew up with. And I think still similar to our generation, but we're given a lot more leeway to try stuff. Now, we're no longer talking about housing and education. We're talking about other issues, digital currencies or even digital twins and metaverses that would help a very tiny landlocked island to scale beyond our dimensions. So that's from my parents to me. And could you speculate on perhaps the generations coming after you about what's their sense of the future and mm -hmm. their responsibility towards it? I think that there's been a concerted effort by the government to promote design thinking for even primary school children. So primary school kids between the age of 6 to 12, they're being asked, so what kind of uh, future do you want? How do you feel about this particular 
people group. And they're beginning to empathize at a very young age. And this is against the backdrop of uh, standardized testing that Singaporeans are really good at, as you would know. Yep. Like even our math syllabus is being exported to America and known as the Singapore math system. By the way, we've abandoned that math system already. We're on to the <laughs> next thing. Don't tell anyone. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I would like to share that, that I think the future generations really, it's really exciting to look at them and they're really empowered to make more creative decisions. I'll give you one. For instance, at the recent Hokkien Hui Guan, which is like the gathering of the Hokkien speaking community, primary schools, there are five of them. Last year, they were given the challenge of designing something for the COVID situation. So these 10-year-olds were thinking this through. And one of the winning ideas was this UV sanitization kind of light for killing germs would be placed in the elevators, but the elevators were finished out with more reflective surfaces so that whenever people leave the elevators, they would disinfect the elevator with the UV light. And when people walked in, it's just a simple motion sensor. If they walked in, all the lights switch off, all the UV lights. So so that came from 10-year-olds. And so it's so encouraging to see that they're able to, again, empathize with the cleaning lady who has a hard time disinfecting the buttons every two hours at the peak of COVID to designing a possible scenario, right, of... Uh, never needing people to do that manually and yet killing all the germs or 99% of the germs without spraying things, just using yep. UV lights. So I shared that one example because it's so brilliant. The students from this primary school called Ai Tong and so forward looking. So yes, I think the future generations very uh, empowered and creative and I would say empathetic for the future them. That's this whole idea of future me, right? Like and a future personas. I think they're ready for it, even at the right old age of 10 years old. Thanks, John. Can you explain to the listeners a concept or philosophy or framework that is Mm -hmm. central to how you do your work? Yeah, because of my own background in architecture, I enjoy looking at things in terms of systems. If you look at a building at walls and HVAC systems and spaces and lighting, those are different systems. But then if I abstract them into, say, business terms, they would be your supply chain and your logistics and operations. But I abstract them further into futures and then you realize, oh, those are your artifacts from the future or your signals or your trends, strong or weak trends and distinguishing drivers from that's local, locally impactful to global drivers. All kinds of, I guess, frameworks that I work with always have this architectural metaphor within. So in that sense, it'll be like an architectural fictions to me. But yeah, that's how I look at things. And so it's been interesting in using that to say, examine the future of design or the future of education. Recently, in the Speculative Futures chapter in Singapore, we ran a very private section, a session on the future of politics where some folks uh, figure out in a very calm political climate of Singapore that we might not even need politicians anymore. And what would that look like? Because if all the policies that we wanted to run could grow and mature over time with a certain algorithmic input, will we still need politicians? So what would the world of politics look like without the personalities of politicians? And so again, using that same kind of architectural metaphor framework to look at worlds that need to be held up by some of these speculations, if you would. 
And looking at even topics like the future of retail, the future of pork. In Singapore, we, we have a lot of Muslim countries around us and Muslim friends here who cannot take pork. But then what is the future of pork importing and the supply chain in Southeast Asia if those forces exist and conditions determine the amount of demand and supply? So very exciting times looking at all these topics, chatting with a fellow futurist like Luke Tay, who's a food futurist in Singapore, and also Alex Fergani, who has an amazing YouTube list of videos. Yes so fun to watch and so yeah i guess working with like-minded folks who in a sense the only common thing we have in mind is, that we have in terms of value is our belief in the shaping the future or designing yeah. the future and so with that well, we come from different backgrounds and we look at things quite differently but i would bring that architectural world building sense to the conversation yeah using architecture as a kind of building a kind of physical manifestation of the future. I wonder how do you have a future focus on the more interior mm. and socially shared things like ethics mm. and value and culture? Yeah. Is culture also something that we can have a future focus on? Mm. How do you practice on that? Yeah, I guess that's where my experience in architecture and design thinking would filter in nicely with futures thinking as well. Because in design thinking, we talk about empathy, right? And the persona as a summary of someone's needs and all. But in futures, we have the future persona, right? Which is a great hinge point to look at what would, say, for instance, university students in 30 years' time, or say 20 years' time, so it's not that far away. In 20 years' time, university students that are 25, around there, have a different learning demand. What would it look like? And everyone's like scratching their head. They're like, no, how would you get there? I, I don't even know what I'll, where I'll be. And they have a lot of resistance to it. But I point to that five-year-old in their room, right? And I go, your daughter or your son has a certain way of learning now. Look at them use Google Home to talk to each other and learn from them. And look at the way that they're, they always talk about digital natives and all. But if you look at it carefully, they've already had that habit. They grew up with this. And what seems really weird to us it's very comfortable for them. I find Minecraft bouncing around with those blocky characters really strange, but they're like, yeah, of course they bounce around, says my five-year-old. We have no problem with that. And they can see these abstracted worlds, pixel worlds, if we refer to now terms, as part of their lives too. And so I would think that the future of education, if you designed it, may not even need a university anymore. And again, I'm a university professor here speaking this way, shooting myself in the foot, right? But it's not, because in, if you look at it that way, there, uh, in that kind of world that you build, there are new interactions. There are new personas to start with. There are new interactions. With new interactions, there will always be these new cultures that come about. That said, a good counterpoint to all this would be the innate needs of human beings that would never change over time. The need for love, assurance, and all, no matter which format you take it in. So balancing that hyper-reality of worlds that extend out of our pixels to what we are, um, to who we are eternally, I guess, will always be that way. Our human needs. You could imagine a culture that you would want to build toward. Yep. I think there were recently in Singapore, we had the Design Futures Symposium that was just run this year in 2022. And there were discussions about how do you then build not just worlds that or a near future products, but how do you build a more 
reasonable me, not just a more sustainable me, but a more reasonable me. And I thought that was quite interesting coming out of that discussion, some of the questions that came out of the symposium. So yeah, I would say to build culture, yes, you may have an architectural framework to it, but there's still the human behind the use of the architecture. Thanks, John. Futures that are emerging around you, which are the ones that you're paying particular attention to as they happen and why? Maybe to give a little context to my answer before I get to it, I just want to share with you about 1000 Singapore's, a project that was done 10 years ago. And the concept was developed by Ku Pingbing and Belinda and their teammate Eric, Eric as well. And what they were imagining was the entire world population uh, living in 1,000 cities designed like Singapore, which takes up about 1% of the world's uh, land surfaces and uses a lot less resources. And because Singapore's population at that time was going towards uh, 6 million, and then it's 6 billion in the world. So it was like 1,000 Singapore's. But that has changed now. I think we need about like 1,120 Singapore's or something because we didn't grow as much. But the whole premise of that project was very interesting because we talked about issues like they explore issues like density and what keeps it going who is it that really runs Singapore and so there are photos of domestic workers and construction workers it's very interesting that peppered through all the diagrams on dimensions and all and so I share this example because as a country that's highly landlocked we're always trying to imagine ourselves as a different form and addressing different issues of density and for such a tiny little country i think we've done an admirable job in providing enough living space we don't have tiny little coffin apartments they call them in hong kong and i think we we have decent amount of green space there's going to be a new town designed called tenga and in tenga's new town there there will be no vehicles on the ground level it's all greenery and all vehicular support will be underground, whether train stations or cars or trucks or whatever else, garbage disposal, it's all underground. So you have this green surface and some folks have been trying to lobby the government to say, hey, why don't we grow edible vegetables instead Mm. of just greenery on top Mm. since it's such an open green space, even with buildings, would you consider that? And in light of that, would be Singapore Food Agency's 30 by 30 plan, where we're supposed to be 30% self-sufficient for our local uh, consumption needs for vegetables and meats and everything else. So very interesting to explore all these challenges of a small city-state. The Centre for Livable Cities, based in Singapore, is also exploring these questions. And with all that said, we can't ignore the fact that this will create a certain kind of density, but we don't want to lose the humanity in all that as well. One good example would be Kampong Admiralty. And Kampong Admiralty is designed by Woha, and they are a housing estate for senior citizens that have a lot of greenery that the elderly likes to go out to and plant or have ownership over and huge spaces that are sheltered for their tai chi exercises and so it's been great looking at all these architectural explorations and examples that Singapore has been trying and experimenting with and to great success in many cases. With that said I think it's hard not to explore futures in terms of spaces 
and urban design and urban policy, whether it's public housing that's open to singles below the age of 35 or not, because the current policy is 35 and above, yep. singles are allowed to buy their own government-subsidized housing. And just for context sake, government-subsidized housing is really nice. 80% of our population lives in it, and it's nicer than some of the projects I've seen in other countries. So I would say come visit sometime if you can, and you'll see that kind of a futures very exciting. So with that said, limited resources and land has always been a, a concern. So whether it be education or design or food or retail, that those where, where my clients come from and where they're asking these questions, I think that's where we'll explore application with scenarios that are wearing weight. It's like you're running and you're constantly wearing the weight of limited land and limited resources and what would you do with very expensive workforce, highly educated, but very expensive? What can you do in a context such as this? So that's what I've been exploring. And some of the clients I have are quite forward thinking yep. and very willing to share their dreams and aspirations. Yours is not a scarcity model, but there's a notion of trying to work within limited resource spaces or limited physical spaces. And Singapore is an island, but of course, it's in a world that, there are many other behaviours being taken which would indicate that people aren't thinking like 1,150 Singapores. They're actually yes. behaving in quite different ways. And I wonder, the notions of dystopia that mm -hmm. often creep in through particularly the Hollywood media when there aren't many futures that aren't framed through dystopia, how does the kind of dystopias in the broader environment interact with this Singapore notion mm -hmm. of the built and the created and the preferred? Yeah, thanks for that question. I think help but think about William Gibson's article about Singapore in Wyatt magazine that got him banned and the magazine as well, entitled Singapore Disneyland with the Death Penalty. Yeah. And to many different people from other cultures, they look at Singapore and go, you have no freedom of speech. You can't do this. You can't do that. That's right. a dystopia, right? Yeah. But what they don't realize is those of us living here, we have absolute freedom to walk out in the middle of the night. My daughters can walk out at 3 a.m. in the middle of the night and not get mugged. Why? Because we have no guns, except the police. And we have cameras everywhere. And to some people, there'll be over-surveillance and a dystopia as well. But then we go, hey, but it gives a blanket of safety and security that really is missing in many countries. And so dystopia in a Singaporean sense, maybe or if Singapore comes across as a dystopia to some people, it might be because of the lens that you're seeing it from. From a Singaporean's point of view, it's great. Wow, my kids go out safe. There's no robbery. There's no this, not that. And wow, I feel really safe with all the cameras. <laughs> Instead of going, oh, what's the camera doing there? Why am I doing this? I guess culturally, we've always been a self-policing state in that sense. In the early years of Singapore, there was this movement where they would say there are many plainclothes policemen. So you have no idea who's a policeman. So when everyone was chewing gum and spitting it on the floor and everything else, and then you go, oh man, Singapore is such a dystopia, you can't chew gum. And I'm like, no, because of this design, this policy of not just the plainclothes police levying a heavy fine on you if you spit or litter, it created a very clean Singapore. And without the chewing gums getting stuck in the doors of the train stations and the trains, we've also saved a lot of man hours trying to resolve those problems, great efficiency, 
things are done on time. I would say not as good as the Japanese, maybe in terms of that timekeeping, but really good already. And uh, I think the dystopic lens that many of these Hollywood movies painted out to be could be, again, with a certain Western bias because that's the world they're referencing. And then a dystopia may be one where there's over-surveillance, maybe a lot of trash everywhere, a lot of smog and, and all. But in Singapore, we we have a very different view of a future that's dystopic would be one where I think we lose our humanity, we lose our culture, we lose our community, our identity. And so in order to preserve all of that, Singapore is greatly designed against losing any of those. And right. so our financial models are built with a lot of robust scenarios to battle lots of huge global movements so that our people remain um, wealthy to a certain extent. Just look at the exchange rate right now. It's ridiculous how the Singapore dollar is stronger than the Australian dollar. A day I thought would never come. We're really close to the US dollar and the pound. There was a time where we would pay four Singapore dollars to a British pound. And now it's 1.4. So it's a very different world. Again, not just the buildings that we have, but really the entire city, be it our fiscal models, political models, where it keeps a very safe and transparent government that then encourages more business investment here. So that's where we're coming from. And I hope it doesn't paint a, a scarier picture for you, uh, a different <laughs> kind of uh, dystopia, but uh, really it's the point of view, isn't it? It's where you're seeing it from. And for us who are benefiting from the scenarios that were planned and executed on in Singapore, we're here to uh, delight in those moments. The desirable future, I would say Singapore has already experienced several of the desirable designed futures. And that's because of not just the government being very forward thinking. And I'm not sure if our listeners know, but I think we're, the, we're one of the few governments that have a center for strategic futures in the prime minister's office. And yep. that says a lot about planning and looking forward and designing the future we want in Singapore. Communication question. How do you explain to people who don't know what John Lynn does, what John Lynn does? <laughs> Great question. So in the past, I would just show a series of images that I've painted or I've collaborated on to explain um, the scenarios and futures that I design with my clients. And I think a picture does paint a thousand words. And so that's where I try to explain to them with a picture. But then at other times, I let their imaginations run wild and tell them I'm a design futurist and let them connect whatever they want in terms of their experiences with that and let that word paint a thousand pictures for them. So that's what I do. And I've tried everything from running a workshop at Harvard called Architectural Fictions, where undergraduate students not from design would come together and use a model kit bashing yeah. method to create worlds and robots and architecture, take them in black and white photos and adjust the narratives to paint a possible scenario. From a workshop like that to a property developer that I worked with that was looking at the future of retail and very concerned about all the e-commerce sites. And so we looked back at how we as individuals enjoy tours in museums. We asked the question, what would retail be like if the shopping mall was a museum mall instead of just a 
typical mall where mm-hmm. people experience things instead of buying things. Yes, they'll consume some. Yes, it's a day out for the family, but what would it be like? In, in hot and humid Singapore, shopping malls are still thriving because we're <laughs> hiding from the heat and going there. And that particular property developer started working with a large e-commerce company after that. So I'm really glad that I, I can work within that little intersection of say, design futures in the middle with three circles around it, be it visionary architecture, business strategy, and service innovation. So if I were to draw a diagram, that would be it. So I'm situated between these disciplines and the design futures that I come up with will be somewhat visual so that it can spark a conversation. But they're not just merely visual. There are business plans behind it. There are financials that could make it real. And that's how I think my clients benefit from the service that I offer them. You've mentioned how there's an office of foresight in the actual prime minister's building. How readily do your clients not only do the imagining, but actually take the ideas from the imagining and actually make it part of their actual things to do to actually create those futures? I've been really fortunate to work with clients that are willing to not just imagine a future beyond their retirement, but a future for the entire industry. Because we can't really separate Singaporeanness from the work that we do because there's always this national level desire, even if it's a small business owner. So I'll illustrate this with a food and beverage company that specializes in, say, um, premium pork, the one about pork that I shared a bit, instead of just looking at their own profits, they're looking at how could they build an ecosystem that shares the knowledge that they have, that moves them beyond just a supplier of pork to creating or preserving the hawker culture that we have. So we have hawker centers that we're so proud of them. They even have a version of it in New York right now to promote Singaporean food as a heritage kind of output in that sense. But how would that local pork distributor in Singapore then help with government policies to say, give fresh graduates from culinary school a discounted rate, say, in owning a, their first restaurant or their first hawker store. And instead of a hawker store, maybe they have hawker restaurants, so a new hybrid. So these business owners are not just thinking for themselves, but thinking for the next generation. And because of that, I think those clients have not just pushed their own business and themselves, but an entire industry forward. So yes, it's hard because, again, you have to line up many stakeholders, but the desire to do its has really inspired many within their own organization as well as their uh, industry uh, peers and even competitors, not just to look at their own profit margins, but look at the industry as a whole. What could you do to keep the hawker culture? We're exporting it there, but it's dying locally. So what do you do? Instead of looking at their own company's growth, they look at the growth of the entire industry. And so that's been very heartening to see these clients work towards it. I'm sure you're aware that Riel Miller has talked about the importance of us developing a futures literacy so we can actually have more and more people think about the future constructively and creatively to create preferred futures. And it's clear to me listening that the futures literacy in Singapore is very different to what a lot of us deal with around the world. What has gone in to create such a literacy, such a range of 
almost images of the future that the people in Singapore can readily accept. And a lot of us in other parts of the world actually find it hard to get traction on. Um, thanks for that question. I think if I could answer this question with an inverted pyramid, if I may. So really wide at the top and then really narrow at the bottom, okay? So we'll, yep. we'll start at really wide at the top in terms of Singapore. So as a nation, we've been encouraged to always work for the nation. It's never a private future. It's always about what's happening next in Singapore. There are constantly campaigns, conversations, workshops, symposiums on a national level. And by conversations, I mean like policymakers meeting grassroots folks and different communities. We're talking about communities such as folks that are on wheelchairs, people who are blind or even clinically blind. They're speaking to these different groups constantly to come up with futures that are equitable for all. And that's not very common, I think, in most places. I think in Singapore, because of our scale and the thoroughness of how the government's going about talking to these different groups, I think at a national level, I would say we're all aware of a future that the current leaders and the country is moving towards. Whatever that future is, we always see it as something really bright. And I know that sounds very utopian in a sense, but why not design for that possibility? Because we know we won't hit an absolute utopia, but at least aim for it. And so as a country and as policymakers, that's what the government's been moving towards. And why we're able to do that, as you rightly pointed out, such a unique thing to be from Singapore and doing that is because we've seen the planning of the past. We've seen the design of certain scenarios of the past it has come through. We have uh, less than 1% homeless. I would say not even 1%, like 0.1% homeless. And why? Because that's designed as not just a policy, but as an entire movement to encourage you to take care of your own family. Don't leave anyone behind. And if there was somebody that's left behind, social services, the nicest possible way, if I can define social services to the <laughs> international world, they come and they would house these people. They'll give them a place to stay. Why? Because it's a policy that's been designed and empowered, and honestly, with money to back up what they're saying. You put your money where your mouth is, and they literally do it. They do take care of these people. They do try their best. Yes, some people still fall through the cracks, but hardly anyone. Try your best to spot a homeless person in Singapore. I would give that challenge. You can, <laughs> because they're constantly being picked up, taken care of, given a place to stay and go, oh, who are your family members? Can we find them? Is there anyone? And so at a national level, we don't want to leave anyone behind. And we're playing a team sport here and you're getting 6 million of us to do it. So <laughs> that's the top of the pyramid, right? The very wide top. But when you start narrowing it down, you find that it's also why we're able to have these kind of future forward mindset is partly because of our education as well. We are trying from a very young age, as mentioned already, that our children are exposed to design thinking at a young age. I won't be surprised if we're going to teach futures literacy to them very soon. I do see futures literacy going into universities a lot more. I do see it starting out in some of the polytechnics, and I'm sure it'll come really soon to high schools and primary schools. And so that education bit is, again, an investment in the future because these children or young adults are going to be our future leaders. And without them understanding futures literacy and understanding how it's not a singular 
future, but one that it could be in the plausible or possible range and education's that next layer. So the top would be the nation and the government. The next layer down would be education. And then the third layer down would be individual companies that are willing to try to shift things, move things around. Individual organizations that are looking at how could they make things better constantly and in the long term and in a sustainable way. Not just one policy, not just one fiscal year, but long term. So we have a SG enable. We have that looks at empowering all the folks that may have some challenges that need, say, occupational therapy help or something else, and they would go about. Customizing these future scenarios for groups of communities, not just themselves, and so I thought that's an interesting key to、mm. unlocking the way we solve things as well. And right at the bottom of the pyramid, that narrow little point is each of us individually. Whether it be business owners, educators, even as I mentioned, the primary school kid could imagine futures, articulate those futures,、um, explain who it benefits and what they desire from it. I think that bodes really well for us as a country. Yes, not everyone knows about futures, but it's becoming more commonplace, I guess, in conversations, especially with business owners and community leaders, and certainly our governments all on board with it. So, government, education, companies, and organizations, and then individuals. I would say the second layer on education needs some work, but there will be more and more of these opportunities, and I think it's been great. And I know it doesn't sound like a lot, but in Singapore. We have a group that's called Singapore Futurists. This meetup group, and we have a thousand people there. And the whole purpose is just to reach out to people and encourage them to think in terms of futures literacy. And that's quite amazing.、But、we're not even counting the other like full-time practitioners in it. It's just enthusiasts that gathers in that group. Out of a country of about six million, I think that's quite a lot of people. We see it as a team sport. We look at futures as a systems-wide innovation that we need to adopt. And I'm so glad that our founding father and the government leaders. Are already very future forward. It's very comforting. It's very encouraging to be Singaporean in a time such as this. We've seen them successfully lead us out of the pandemic. We see them lead us out of the fishing village poverty that we had in '65 up to what we are today. And we have full confidence in the next generation of leaders, my children and those in primary school, to guide us to even brighter future. That's a beautiful answer, John. Thanks very much. On behalf of the FuturePod community and listeners, thank you very much for taking some time out to have a chat. Thank you so much. Really nice time, Peter. I wish we could chat even more, maybe at another time with a、uh, different series of questions, and maybe with other friends as well. That would be great. Thank you. My guest today was John Lim. You'll find more details about the things that John spoke about in the show notes on the website. I hope you enjoyed today's conversation as much as I did. I thought it was an uplifting story of what is possible. FuturePod is a not-for-profit venture. We exist through the generosity of our supporters. If you'd like to support the pod, please check out our Patreon on the website. I'm Peter Hayward, saying goodbye for now.